for most in life. At the moment, my children are all chat um, about what they hope to get for Christmas from a certain bearded man who hopefully won't get stuck in the chimney. But I would imagine your hopes are maybe a bit more meaningful than the latest Barbie set, which my girls have their eyes on. Maybe you hope for a spouse. You just hope to meet the right person and fall in love and settle down and have a life partner and you'll grow old together and you'll do this adventure of life together. Or maybe you hope to have kids, and that's a journey that is easy for some and difficult for others. Maybe your biggest hope is to have even just one child to call your own, to love them and, and raise them and watch them grow and flourish. Or maybe you have hopes in your career to climb the ladder, to earn more, even to break away from what you're doing and set out on your own, doing what you love but it's maybe just a hope for now. You haven't managed it yet. Or maybe for you, it's, it's not anything as big as that. You just hope to get away from it all, get on a holiday. Life is hectic, and that's the thing that's keeping you going is that light at the end of the tunnel, two weeks away in the sun, rest and relaxation, no stress and no responsibilities. Now, all of these things are great things to hope for, and if you resonated with any of that this morning, I hope you get them for what it's worth. But we know that life often doesn't give us what we hope for. Sure, it doesn't. I hope this week that the Royal Mail strike wouldn't prevent my contact lenses getting here in time for Sunday. But no, here we are. We have to wear the binoculars. The spouse maybe doesn't come along. Maybe the relationship breaks down. Sickness and death prevent you or your partner from reaching old age. Having children certainly isn't as easy as it sounds. I'm more blessed than I can put into words to have three girls, but it has been a hard road to get there, at times very uncertain. Sometimes the career doesn't work out, redundancy comes, or we just never quite have the finances to do that thing and break away and launch our own business. Sometimes the stress-free holiday, well, it meets some unexpected turbulence, canceled flights, long delays, missing baggage, I speak from recent experience, and the stress levels escalate pretty quickly. But the Bible says that Christians should be people who live in hope. All through the Bible, it's the story of God's people that they are people of hope. Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham hoped against hope. In other words, he hoped, despite his unhopeful-looking circumstances, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been promised. We read Psalm 130 there together, and the author of that psalm is calling to God from out of the depths we don't know exactly what the situation is, but it's not good. It's as if life is swamping him over at the moment. And he says to God, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I put my hope. We're to be people defined by hope. Paul prays for the Romans later on. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you might overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to be people with so much hope that it overflows. It's filled to the brim and it, it spills over. Sometimes when we talk about evangelism and sharing our faith, we think of that little verse in First Peter, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. And sometimes we're a bit vague about how that verse ends. Be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks you what you believe or what church is about or who Jesus is, but it doesn't end that way. It says, always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And the premise of that verse is that people will ask us what the hope we have is because we will look like people who live with hope. 
And the hope that we have isn't the hope, or it isn't like the hope for a spouse, which might or might not happen, or the hope for a better paid job, or a set of contacts, or whatever. In Hebrews, we read that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. It's a hope of going where Jesus has gone, and it's sure and steadfast. It's BB head on there, but it's absolutely certain because of what Jesus has done. And it's a hope that will last forever. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, we read the start of that last week. Remember, love is patient, love is kind, and so on. And at the end of that chapter, we're told that when tongues and prophecies have passed away, when we see our Savior face to face, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Now, obviously, the object of our hope is in the future. That's the point that Paul makes, and that's our question for this week. Paul asks, who hopes for what he already has? Well, nobody. But if we wait for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Nobody lies on a beach and thinks to themselves, I really hope I get a beach holiday in the sun. That would be silly. If we hope for something we do not have that's in the future, then we're prepared to wait for it. The NIV says we wait for it patiently. Perhaps it might be better to say that we hope in a way that we're able to endure. We can persevere. Even when things are tough just now, we can get through it because we have this hope. So this morning on the first Sunday of Advent, when we begin to think about that wait for the first coming of Jesus, and as we as God's people look forward with hope to His return, this morning I I want us to think about three things which characterize God's people as we live as people who have hope. And as followers of Jesus, we have hope for the world, hope for ourselves, and hope in prayer. So let's look at those together. Firstly, we have hope for the world. And when I say the world, I don't mean the people. I'm not really talking about evangelism here. I mean the earth, the planet that we live on. We have hope for the earth. And here's how Paul puts it in verse 19 of Romans 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. When it says in verse 19 that the creation waits in eager expectation, the word used literally means to to stretch your head forward. In other words, it's as if the, the creation is standing on tiptoe to try and get to see something. It's putting its head forward to see the sons of God be revealed. And as the sons of God, and that includes you ladies as well, we haven't been revealed yet. At the moment, we still look like everybody else. You can't tell by looking at somebody whether they are a Christian or not. But one day, it will be clear for everyone to see as our lowly bodies are transformed into the likeness of Christ's glorious body, a spiritual body. And the whole earth is like a little child waiting to see this. The whole world, it says, has hope for this. It's waiting eagerly for it. And Paul explains in verse 20 why it's waiting so eagerly. And the reason is that this is what the world was made for. But that never really happened. Because Adam and Eve sinned and and sin came into the world, 
the earth suffers. The earth was subjected to frustration, but all of this is going to change. The earth's going to be brought into the freedom of the new creation. Paul says that it's like a woman in childbirth. Now, I know some of you here today have given birth, and some of you have witnessed birth. I've witnessed it three times. But I have a friend who has two children, and during her first labor, she spent most of the time screaming at her husband, the poor man. Why? Why? Why did we think this was a good idea? Who would ever dream of doing this more than once? Let me tell you something right now. We are not doing this again, she said. But she did do it again. Because even though it's painful, the outcome was something worth going through the pain for. Why does Paul talk about the creation in this way? Why is the creation in the pangs of childbirth? Well, I think ultimately this is one of the ways in which we as God's people have hope. We have hope for the world. That's what this part of Romans 8 is about. After all, it's hope for the future. Something better is coming, something worth going through the pain for. So as we look around at the world, we have hope because we know something better is coming. And this means that as God's people, we should care about the world. We should look after the world. We should think about the environment. Now, sometimes as Christians, I think especially as you know, conservative, evangelical Christians, we sometimes kind of shy away from talking about things like this because if somebody preaches a sermon about the environment, they're probably a liberal. And we stay away from that sort of thing. We preach about sin and about Jesus and about redemption and the cross. And, and those liberals, they, they preach about all this sort of lovey-dovey stuff and looking after the earth. And they ignore sin and all that sort of things. That just exposes our bias. Sometimes, though, we also think that because this earth's going to pass away, well, it doesn't really matter that much because we're going to get a new one anyway. But I'm not so sure about that. And I don't think Paul would have been. Because part of our purpose as human beings is to look after the world. It was meant to be anyway. Right back in Genesis 2:15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. It wasn't hard labor, but there weren't weeds or anything like that in Eden. But it was work. It was good work. It was the work we had to do when we were created. But sin messed all of that up. Whenever God was putting Adam and Eve out of the garden after they sinned, after he, he says what the curse will be for them, he says this in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground, cursed is the earth because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And then what do we read that God promises to Abraham? We've thought about him already. He says, to your offspring I give this land. And it's the same word for earth. And in that land, God told the people that if they obeyed him, he would dwell with them and the land would produce for them. Deuteronomy 11. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I've commanded you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, he will give the land its rain in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. The land actually really matters, not political territory, or at least not just that, the actual land itself. With the fall of humanity and sin, the creation was cursed too, but because of what Jesus has done, the creation is redeemed. 
not just people, but the creation. In Isaiah 11, we, we read words that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The little child shall play over the nest of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the snake's den. Paul tells the Colossian Christians that in Christ all things were created, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Isaiah also says that instead of thorns, cypress trees will grow. Instead um, of, of thorns and thistles, cypress shall come. There's a glorious future for the new creation. In Revelation, we, lead of, we read of the river of life, and it's a picture of trees yielding their fruit. On Friday past, actually, in my own readings, I was reading the end of the book of Ezekiel, which is not an easy read, let me tell you. There are painstaking details about the, the dimensions of the new creation and so on. But Ezekiel says that he sees fishermen all down the banks of that river, and they're bringing in hordes of all kinds of fish, and the trees in the river are in fertile ground. They're watered by the river. The trees never fail to produce their fruit. Do you see it? This creation, this world actually matters, and we have hope for it. It isn't a side issue or something that only certain churches talk about. It's actually right at the heart of the gospel. This world was created perfect. It was affected by the curse of God. It still is. But because of what Jesus has done, it's straining forward. It's waiting eagerly on tiptoe for the sons of God to be revealed. Because when that happens, the whole creation will be completely renewed no more violence, no more pollution, fruitful trees always producing a harvest. We can look at the world with hope because something better is coming. We might be tempted to look with despair when we look at polluted seas and our depleted ozone and all other kinds of pollution and a climate emergency, even if we don't agree about all the details of that. People battered by extreme weather and food shortages and the rest of all that. No, we live as people of hope. We know something better is coming. But that doesn't mean we wash our hands of it and say, well, sure, we're getting a new earth anyway. God's going to do that. No, as redeemed people, we live as we were created to. We also live on tiptoe, as it were, for these things to happen. Remember all these things about the earth being damaged. They're all a result of sin. I don't think that means we have to give up our cars or only use renewable energy or anything like that. But we are called to work and keep this earth. We're meant to look after it within our means, with the resources we have. We're to do our best. We're to make wise choices. And as we do that, we can take great pleasure in it because we live as people of hope, people who know that as we look after this earth, a new one is being ushered in. But I also think this ha does have an impact on our evangelism because as we look at the world around us, the created world, including all the people in it, we look at it with hope. It's not a lost cause. We probably don't think of this as a, our primary mode of evangelism. You know, we do want to tell people that they're sinners, destined for hell, but Jesus has done something amazing so they can be saved. And of course, that's absolutely true. But God's plan of salvation is bigger than just individuals. Don't mishear me. Individual people still matter very, very much. Everyone will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But what about the people who've heard it all before? What about the people who, if you start talking about sin and all that stuff, well, they're just going to switch off? 
What if we could tell them about life in a new world? What if we could tell them of a perfect world created by a perfect and holy God who loved us and made us and was betrayed by us as we gave his place as God to others? And the punishment of that was for all the creation, including us. We can see that all around us. But he's loved us and he's redeemed us by giving his son to take the curse for us, to bring us into a new world, life the way it was meant to be, if we will now turn and give him back his rightful place as God of our lives. So we live as people with hope for the world. I think that would be one good reason to give anybody who asks you why you have hope. We live as those who have hope for the world. And so included with that, secondly and obviously, we have hope for ourselves because we are in the world. As we look to that glorious future of the new creation, we see ourselves in it. Paul says in verse 23, as he says, the creation is in the pains of childbirth as a, a new, better creation is coming in. He says, not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Yes, we groan inwardly. We all have pain and hardship now, but we wait eagerly. It's the same word again, the same as the creation. We also are standing on our tiptoes, straining our heads forward like excited children, looking to the redemption of our bodies. We have the first fruits of it now. We have the Holy Spirit. That means we have it in part now, but we're going to have it fully in the new world. And this is why, if we jump back for a moment to verse 18, and the reason why I wanted to read that this morning, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, again, in the original language, this is much more visual, but, you know, before it was the, the head straining forward, this time the language Paul uses is of a set of scales, a balance. He says that when you weigh up our present sufferings and the glory that's coming to us, it's not even worth comparing. It's as if we had a, a giant set of scales in this room, maybe the width of this room, if you can imagine that, and you put an elephant on one side, and somebody's brought along their pet hamster, and they say, well, I, I'm going to put it on the other side and see if it makes a difference. It's not worth doing. It's not worth even trying it. You can see what's going to happen. And that's what Paul is saying here about the present suffering and the glory that is to come. But I know some of you here today have suffered quite a lot. I know that some of you have been bereaved. I've had the privilege of walking through some of you with that. Some unexpected stuff has happened. I know some of you have work stress. I, I know some of you have had illness yourselves. You've had to cope with that. I know that the same is true maybe for your relatives. I, I know that. And Paul knew that too about the Roman Christians he was writing to. He's not somebody who's living in his own world. The Roman Christians were ordinary people just like us. And on the top of all the things that they would have faced just as being ordinary people, they were persecuted for being Christians. The church historians tell us that many of the Christians, probably the Jewish Christians in Rome, were displaced because it was unsafe to be a Christian there. And at the time this letter was being written, they were just starting to return. And that, that's why in the first few chapters of Romans, we see all this talk about whether there's any advantage for the Jew against the Gentile. Paul's um, addressing that because that's going on in their lives. They've been displaced, they've come back in, and there was maybe a bit of tension. 
So they've had a hard time. They were persecuted. They were displaced. They were refugees in their own city. So they knew what it was to suffer. Paul certainly knew what it was to suffer. We don't know anything about his family. He never mentions them. So it seems certain that he must have had to leave them when he became a Christian. He was shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten and stoned almost to death. In fact, the people thought he was dead. And yet he says, if you want to compare your sufferings to the glory that's coming, the glory is so much more that it's not even worth getting the scales out of the cupboard. I wonder if you can picture in your mind all the suffering in your life. Maybe you don't want to do that, but all the suffering you've ever had in your life, let's imagine you do that, and you want to take your suffering and put it on a set of scales on one side. And then I want you to see past those scales, standing in front of you, Jesus, and he presses down on the other side of the scales. You're surprised. Your suffering seems a lot bigger than he is, but he's exceedingly strong, ridiculously strong. In fact, so strong that the side of the scales that had your suffering on them rise so quickly that they just fly off into oblivion. Dear help any poor mouse when an elephant stands on the other side of the scales. There is no chance it's going to fly away. And neither does your pain. Don't mishear me. I know that this life is hard. Sometimes we can get to a point where we're completely overwhelmed and just don't know what to do. But in Jesus, we have a hope. And it's only a hope for now, but we have a hope that one day we'll be in glory so marvelous that all the suffering and affliction that we could ever face in this life simply isn't even worth comparing to it. That's pretty good news. And it's another pretty good answer for the hope that we have. And then thirdly and finally, we're people of hope as we have hope in prayer. When you read Romans 8, it seems like verses 26 and 27 kind of are out of place because he's just been talking about the world being saved and restored, the whole world will be redeemed, and those who trust in Jesus as the forgiver of their sins are part of that too. And then he's going to go on to talk about how in the here and now, well, God is for us. He's done the hardest thing for us. He's paid for our sins, so he'll surely do all things, everything else. No one can bring any charge against us as God's people. Nothing can separate us from his love. We've looked at all of those things. But in the middle of this, he puts in a little two verses as we have them on prayer. Maybe we think Paul should have put that somewhere else. But I don't think so. The thing that links all of this together is the fact that in this world, we will have suffering, we'll have trouble. We all get sick. We all get sad, maybe to different degrees than one another and all of us are destined to death. And so Paul wants to encourage us to say, we have hope, the earth has hope, God is for us. But in the midst of suffering, it's Paul's assumption that we'll actually want to pray. In Paul's mind, it's just part of the Christian life. When suffering comes, it's like a natural reflex. We'll want to talk to God. We want to talk to the one who has saved us and the one who can do anything for us. And so Paul talks about prayer. Look with me again at verses 26 and 27. Paul says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Now, 
People disagree about what that means exactly, about the Spirit groaning. I mean, is, is it us groaning, saying, oh, Lord, when we can't even find the words? And he kind of takes that in prayer and, and offers it before the throne in, in a more complete way. Or is it a metaphor? Is it the Spirit himself who, who groans, as it were, when we can't pray and he all by himself offers prayers on our behalf? There's no definite way for us to know which one Paul is saying, but ultimately it doesn't matter too much because the end result is the same. When we're suffering and we just don't know what to pray, it's okay. We can come before God whatever way we are, whatever words we can manage to get out and offer it to Him. And the work of the Spirit is to offer that to God. And because the Spirit lives in us and He knows what our needs are, even better than we do, then those are presented to God even if the prayer didn't sound that great to us. Paul must have been in a creative mood when he wrote this, because again, he uses a word which is completely visual. The word that he uses in verse 26, that the Lord helps us, that the Spirit helps us um, to pray, is a word which means to carry with somebody. Maybe you've had that um, experience moving a large piece of furniture or something. It's a word that could be used to describe two people uh, carrying a heavy object together, one at each end. So, Imagine if somebody came in here this morning and said to me, John, I'll give you a million pounds if you carry that lectern down to the Rosetta roundabout at the end of the Ravenhill Road and back again. But once you lift it, it's not allowed to touch the floor or the ground until you bring it back. And you can't phone anybody, and no one from the church is allowed to help you. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to lift this. It's pretty heavy. It's really heavy, in fact. I can lift it, I can get it off the ground, but there's no way, there's absolutely no way on this earth I could lift it down here, take it down to the end of the Ravenhill Road, down to the roundabout, and bring it back. I just couldn't do it, not even for a million pounds. But then, to my delight, Tom Stoltman walks in through the door. Now, if you don't know who Tom is, he's a Scottish guy, and this year he won the World's Strongest Man competition for the second year in a row. And I say to myself, I was told that nobody from this church could help me. But nobody said anything about somebody just walking in from the street. So I ask him if he can help me, and he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take an end for you. Now, I would still struggle. I'm not very strong. But I fancy for a million quid, I could probably do it. And that's a wee bit like what Paul is saying here. When we're suffering, we don't know what to pray. We don't know what to say. We can still pray. I mean, I, I can still lift this just about. But we can't pray right. We don't really know what we need to say. Now, the Spirit could just pray for us and leave us out of it, cut us out. I'm pretty sure the world's strongest man could lift this and walk down to the end of the road and back with it. He's strong. He's exceptionally fit. He doesn't need me. But he chooses just to take one end and let me lift it anyway. And that's how prayer is. God doesn't need us to say anything. He doesn't need us to do that, but He chooses to let us pray with His help because He's a relational God and we're relational people. We're His children, and He wants us to come to Him. He wants to hear from us no matter what our problem is. If you think to yourself, well, I just don't know what to say, well, that's okay. One person has said that all you need to do is put your fingers in your ears and start talking. 
In other words, stop listening to yourself. Stop listening to what you're saying. Stop worrying that your prayers aren't good enough. Stop analyzing your words and criticizing them. Just talk. Just get going. And when we do that, Paul says, we have hope because God hears us. And the Spirit, in ways we can't describe, in inexpressible ways, well, He then prays on our behalf. And that is a pretty wonderful hope too. We have hope for the world We've hope for ourselves, and in that, we have hope in prayer. I don't know about you, but I think that's a real challenge to live as people of hope. I know I have hope, but I wonder if the people I know would describe me as somebody who is full to the brim and overflowing with hope. I'm not so sure. But we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. May the Lord take His Word and plant it deep in us so that we may appreciate more fully the hope to which we've been saved so that we can endure patiently until we see Him face to face. Amen.